Today's conversation is brought to you by Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Whether you're called to ministry, the workplace, or the academy, Gordon Conwell can equip you to lead in your calling. The seminary offers programs on four campuses, online and hybrid, focusing on deep spiritual formation, biblical grounding, a solid theological framework, global vision, and practice skills. Visit gcts.edu nae to meet Gordon Conwell's faculty and explore how seminary can further your calling. There's a preciousness, a tenderness to our soul that requires a level of careful and slow um, observation, uh, you, you know. And so when we're living at this kind of chaotic pace, we don't give our souls the opportunity to rest, to breathe, to be, to receive the nutrients from God that we desperately need. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. In our hurried world, prayer and deep spiritual formation can feel out of reach, impractical, maybe even impossible. In today's conversation, Rich Viotas challenges that notion completely. Rich is the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York City, generally understood to be a hurried, busy place. And he's the author of The Deeply Formed Life, Five Transformative Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. Here's our conversation. Rich, thanks so much for joining me. Walter, so good to be with you. Thanks for the kind invitation. Your book, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, received the 2021 Christianity Today Award for Spiritual Formation. It's theologically rich. It's wonderfully practical. So to start, I'd love to hear about your journey. What led you into this space of thinking and writing on contemplative spirituality and spiritual formation? Yeah, what, when it comes to the contemplative side of uh, The Deeply Formed Life, I was introduced to it, um, first of all, in college. Uh, in some ways, I'd say my grandfather, who, uh, when I became a Christian at 19, his, his bedroom was in a sense, kind of felt like a little monastery. And so I spent time with him praying and uh, studying scripture together. But I think formally the, the contemplative tradition was, uh, came to me in college. I, I took a class on spiritual formation and uh, part of the class was to study uh, some of the desert tradition. And uh, part of the class as well was going to a monastery in the New York area to spend time in prayer. And uh, I remember going to uh, a monastery called Graymore, uh, which is a Franciscan monastery. And in part of the weekend retreat, the professor had us all, you know, 30 students or so at different parts of the monastery, uh, isolated for, I would say, six hours or so. And in those six hours of just journaling and praying and napping uh, and other things there, <laughs> I, I encountered something that I could not read in a book. 
uh, it was something about the love of God, the very presence of God that met me in that time of silence and solitude, a prolonged sense of silence and solitude. And not that it was all great, but uh, my appetite was wet. And so at that point, uh, after that experience in college, I just started diving deeper into uh, the history of the contemplative tradition uh, throughout the years of the church. And uh, from that point on, I have not uh, given up my love for that particular aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. So you've given us a little bit of an indication just by sharing your experience, but let's let's take a look at the big picture. What is contemplative spirituality? How would you define it? Yeah, uh, so many ways to, to look at it. My, my simplest way of trying to explain what contemplative life looks like and contemplative spirituality is it's slowing down to be with God. Um, if, if I can, you know, I have a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old. And so when we talk about con contemplation at dinner, I'm not using those big words, but I'm saying, what does it look like for us to slow down to be with God? And I think that definition um, works for the rest of us as well, not just seven-year-olds and 12-year-olds. Um, yeah, it's the, it's the aspect of, in, in a world that does not spend much time in reflection and beholding God and allowing ourselves to be beheld by God, it's that act of slowing down. And so whether we're talking about scripture, whether we're looking at prayer, silence, the way we uh, look at our own interior lives, the contemplative life at its core, it's a, a willingness to slow down to be with God. This slowing down um, makes me think of a, a quote from your book that's so striking. You write, the speed we live at does violence against our souls. Mm. What do you mean by that? And, and how does this idea work in your urban context in a city known uh, for fast living, a city that never sleeps? Yeah, you know, you know our souls, the reason the, the speed does violence against our souls is because our souls were meant to be tended to. Um, our, our souls were meant to, uh, to, to uh, th there's a preciousness, a tenderness to our soul that requires a level of careful and slow um, observation, uh, you, you know? And so when we're living at this kind of chaotic pace, we don't give our souls the opportunity to rest, to breathe, to be to receive the nutrients from God that we desperately need, uh, and when I think about that in my city here, uh, in New York City, uh, you know, in, in many ways, I do think that while New York is particularly prone to this kind of pace, um, in in many ways, I think New Yorkers have exported this pace to the rest of the world, mm. uh, and so I've been in many different contexts. I was. Um, uh, you know, recently in Indiana. And, um, you know, even in Indiana, there's a pace of life to some pastors and I was with that just seems frenetic. And so, yes, we might have more car honking and uh, more cars on Queens Boulevard nearby here. But I do think the human condition is often marked by, especially in this age, uh, efficiency, uh, marked by speed, getting things done. Uh, and so whether in, in New York or whether in Indiana or Florida or wherever we might be, I, I think the challenge before us in this age is ubiquitous. Uh, and so uh, that being said, the contemplative life in New York becomes in some ways a prophetic countercultural act of discipleship, where I refuse to 
be dominated by the speed, by the pace, by the values of the society. And the contemplative life, I think, gives an open door to that kind of resistance. Mm. Violence, though, that's such a strong word. So I'm going to push you a little bit yeah, on that one. Yeah. Like, in what way is it violence? What, what, is, what do you mean by that violence? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, there's this weariness that comes by just being human. Um, and, and then there's this self-imposed um, uh, marks of, and, and I think violence is the right word, where our souls, it, it's, it, we might not, it, the violence that I speak of is, I, I think I'm speaking somewhat metaphorical in the sense that uh, I'm not walking around here with exposed wounds on my body necessarily, um, uh, but our bodies, our souls experience a weariness Um uh, you know, our, that our pace of life uh, ends up destroying our souls in that way. And so, you know, our, our, our bodies, I, we say at New Life that our, our bodies are major prophets, not minor prophets, that they speak very loudly. And whether it's our bodies, whether it's our psychological state, whether it's our emotional state, our physical state, our, our, our spiritual state, um, there's something wrong with the world and with our lives. And so, yeah, I, I think I am trying to press into something to say, this is more than just you having a bad day. The very nature of your soul is at stake here by the pace that we live. That is powerful. Weary, wounded, shows up in all these ways. Um, you know, you describe the contemplative life, and I'm tempted to say certain personalities might more naturally gravitate toward that, and certain personalities might find it really, really difficult. In your experience, is there any truth to that? Are certain personalities just more inherently able to gravitate toward this and others not? And what do you do with that as mm -hmm. someone trying to help others grow in this? You know, I, that's typically what people say where, you know, the, uh, the contemplative life is for introverts. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I pastor a very large church in Queens. So, uh, you know, over 1500 people come to new life. Uh, I've been here over 13 years. And so because New York can be pretty transient, I've probably come across a lot more than 2000 people in our congregation over 13 years and have talked about this stuff with them. And what I have found is um, it's not necessarily the introverts that are the only ones that gravitate towards this. Uh, so I don't think it's a personality thing. Um, uh, maybe they might be a bit more um, uh, prepared for the contemplative life, uh, but I've seen introverts who have a hard time because the contemplative life is not just, I enjoy being alone. It's, I enjoy a level of prayerfulness a level of inner exploration. And you could be an introvert and not do any kind of inner exploration. You could be an introvert and not do the work of prayer. Uh, you could, I mean, to be an introvert is, I just find energy, more energy being alone than with people. And I've met plenty of introverts that don't pray and plenty of introverts mm. that are not self-aware. So, <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, and, and so I'd say, uh, although they might have a proclivity uh, to want to be drawn to the contemplative life, maybe a little bit more than extroverts, uh, in my work as a pastor in Queens, I have not just seen this as something for introverts. I've seen many extroverts gravitate towards this as well, maybe even more so because they recognize I need a deeper well of uh, a deeper life to draw from. And that life is coming from God in prayer.
So, so what are the rhythms to get to that deeper life? What are the rhythms that we can establish in this hurried world? Mm, I, I, there are a few that come to mind. I think the first one that comes to mind uh, is Sabbath keeping. And I, Sabbath keeping is this 24-hour period with uh, no have-tos or shoulds that over time is to result in great rest and renewal, deep rest and renewal. Uh, and uh, so much of our world is marked by this frenetic pace of I keep going and I'm not going to stop. Uh, but so one of the ways that uh, I seek to live it out, one of the ways that our congregation seeks to live it out is to pause for 24 hours, stopping our paid work and our unpaid work to rest, to delight, uh, to contemplate. Um, you know, as Eugene Peterson noted, you know, he kind of summarized Sabbath in two words, uh, if praying and playing, um, you know, giving ourselves over to recreation and, and that kind of prayerful spirit, that if we're not doing that on a regular basis, um, our, our souls are really going to experience some, um, some significant damage. So that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of just Sabbath. I also think of silent prayer as an act of um, the contemplative life and very practically doing this. You know, there's so many ways to pray. And I think we need all the ways that we can pray, whether we're talking about intercession, whether we're talking about petition, whether, it, whether we're using um, good acronyms that we use from time to time. Uh, but silent prayer is a way of sharing presence with God in such a way where the goal is not getting anything from God. The goal is very simply to be with God, to share presence with God. And I do think that this kind of prayer is a really um, important corrective to the ways that we often approach God. The ways that we approach God is often very transactional. Mm -hmm. And so I need to say a few things and say some words, particularly in a certain way and for a certain amount of time with a certain level of enthusiasm, and then God will grant me what I want. And certainly, again, I believe in the God who responds to our prayers and the God who uh, is gracious enough to hear our cries and respond. But if the only reason we're connecting with God is to get something from God, I think we're missing out on sharing simple presence with God. And the contemplative life is, I, I'm not trying to get something. I just want to be with God. Mm -hmm. And in that process of just being with God, I think what people are discovering, uh, you know, whether in science and neuroscience, there's something happening in our brains. There's, there's something rewired. Neuroscientists and everyone else are discovering what the ancients knew, that to be with God is to have our minds renewed uh, and to, um, to experience a depth of life uh, that can't come with the hustle and bustle of society. And so Sabbath keeping, silent prayer, and often for me, it's just, it's a slow reading of scripture. It's, I'm not trying to read scripture in such a way to get through everything. I, I, I actually like reading the Bible in one year plans. I like those plans. I think it's really helpful. The problem is we can read the Bible in one year uh, in such a way that doesn't draw us to God. Uh, and so how do, we, how do we slow down in reading scripture to be encountered by the God who longs to speak to us? Um, and this in a scrolling world, in a superficial reading world, 
um, we need this kind of slow, bite-sized reading of scripture more and more. And so those are the three kind of practices that come to mind for me, Sabbath and silent reading and the slow reading of scripture um, to flesh out this contemplative life. Mm. But you describe them in ways that are really compelling. I mean, I, I noted the words delight and play mm. associated with Sabbath. And I think there's a temptation when we think of words like Sabbath to envision it as something, oh my, this is going to be so boring. Right. <laughs> How am I going to get through these 24 hours? And yet you're using words like delight and play and love and encounter. That's yeah. really a different way of describing something that some might fear would be incredibly boring. Yeah. And you know what? What, what, what we've learned, and, and gratefully, we've had some great mentors along the way here. My children, who are 12 and 7, love Sabbath. Uh, I know some children or you know, people who are adults who grew up in a kind of Sabbath culture, and Sabbath meant everything you should, you know, you, you, you shouldn't do, you're not going to do, you know, so it's, it was focused on, you're not going to do this. You're not going to watch TV. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. You're going to pray. And, and I remember uh, thinking, how can we get our child to love Sabbath? And how can we incentivize Sabbath in a way where we associate it with joy and associate it with delight? And we decided uh, early on that, you know, on Fridays, when we keep Sabbath, you know, Friday, 6 p.m. to Saturday, 6 p.m., uh, you're going to get extra ice cream on the Sabbath. And so I remember my daughter walking out from school one day, she's in kindergarten at the time. And she says, Hey daddy, gets what, what today is. And I said, so it's Friday. And she goes, no, no, it's Sabbath. We're going to get ice cream today. A lot of ice cream. And I thought, ah, it's working here, you know? So uh, now the challenge with that is they can just think it's all about ice cream <laughs> and they miss out God in the process. So we've had to do a lot of work trying to hold the two together. Oh, well, okay. You've just described something and anticipating something I was going to ask you. Um, there's a balance between giving people uh, aspirational vision and, mm -hmm. and telling them it's more than just the techniques, yeah. but at the same time, there are certain tools and techniques in order to break it down into bite-sized steps. Yeah. So um, give us some tools, techs, techniques, and then give us also the cautions that come along with that so that we're not wrapped up in just a, a checklist of uh, mechanics for, for the prayers that you're talking about. Walter, is this in prayer, generally speaking, or Sabbath? Just give me which one in particular, any of those? Let's do prayer. Let's kind of okay. shift from the Sabbath now to, okay. to prayer. Yep. Uh, some of the techniques for prayer. Well, when I, when I think about silent prayer, again, many, many other ways to pray, <clears throat> but when I think about silent prayer in particular, there's a few, um, ways that I think that help to reframe what we're doing here and how to do it well. Uh, the first is, uh, that it requires us to, uh, uh, to normalize boredom, uh, and, and this is one of the more practical things I could say, just normalize boredom. And by that, I mean, prayer, generally speaking, especially this kind of silent prayer is often uneventful. That we don't in the moment see anything happening. And if anyone's like me, I often want to see, am I growing in the moment? You know, every, if I, if I do 20 pushups, I look at myself in the mirror, I go, am I, is anything happening here or no? Should I just give up? You know? And that's how it is with prayer as well. I want to know, am I growing? And yet 
this impulse, this compulsion that I have to want to know, am I growing? Am I doing it the right way? Might be missing the greater point of the goal is not tracking my growth. The, the goal is being with God. And so, which means I have to normalize boredom, that some of the deeper work of God happens in moments that are uneventful. Uh, additionally, I think reframing distractions is really important in, in this silent prayer. Anyone who, decide, who decides, I'm going to take two minutes of silence, five minutes of silence, 10 minutes of silent prayer, is going to run into a significant amount of distractions. All of the things that are on our subconscious, conscious minds are going to come to the surface. And we're going to think, oh, no, you know, I, whenever I sit down in prayer, I'm thinking, do the Mets play tonight? Uh, oh, no, I still have to work on my sermon. Oh, and that email. Oh, and if this person says this, I'll say that to that. I have all these imaginary conversations running in my head. And so for me, one of the things that have been really helpful to center me in the love of God is using like a very simple phrase like, Lord, here I am. Lord, here I am. And for me, what it does is it reminds me why I'm showing up. I, Lord, I want to be with you. And so I sit down in my chair and, oh, the Mets are playing and man, they're terrible this year. Oh, Lord, here I am. <laughs> I got to come back to the center. And when I get down on a road of thinking about my own maybe uh, mistakes and my failures, with, there's a time to reflect on those things. But in this kind of prayer, I want to be attentive to God and God's presence. Lord, here I am. And so a simple phrase like that, I heard it said that, you know, if our minds get distracted a hundred times in 10 minutes of prayer, it's a hundred opportunities to come back to Jesus. And I think what a liberating perspective uh, that I used to think that distractions in prayer th meant that I was a bad Christian. Uh, it turns out it means I'm a human being, uh, that I'm going to be distracted. And so I get to come back to this God who's waiting with me with arms of, with arms of love. And then I also say, you know, in terms of te techniques or strategies for this here, uh, I think doing what the church has done for thousands of years is always, always helpful. And that is praying the words of others until we can formulate our own words. Uh, I think this is the, the gift of the Psalms. This is the gift of um, the, the prayers of Paul. These are the gifts that of the church throughout 2000 years where people have said, I'm going to pen down prayers um, not just for my own use, but for our shared life together in worship. And I often think people wonder how, I don't even know what to say when I pray. I, sometimes I just need to borrow words from others until their words, uh, become mine and I can formulate my own words and doing that out of a time of silence can be really helpful. So those, um, Walter, those, that's what comes to my mind initially when I think about ways to grow deeper in this particular practice. Mm. You've broken it down um, in really helpful, practical ways. I, I love it. Um, most people aren't monks. Most people aren't going to be able to carve out large amounts of times to kind of get into that deep, deep mode of contemplation. What advice do you have for someone who says, okay, I have five minutes here, there. I mean, I'm chasing kids. I'm trying to get to work. I'm navigating the subway, whatever. Or you know, I can carve out maybe 15 minutes in the morning. Like, give, give some practical advice for people who mm -hmm. in real life are just grasping for time here or there. Yeah, my, my first word of encouragement would be that Jesus knows how to do a lot with a little. 
And whether it's the little boy who's giving him his little pieces of bread and fish and Jesus uses that to multiply and feed the thousands, uh, Jesus knows how to do a lot with a little. And so whether we're giving two minutes in a given day, I recognize some of us, I, I know what it's like personally, Walter. I mean, it's just recently, you know, uh, the school year started in September uh, for um, a year and a half. My kids have been home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, I mean, I know it. And, and, we're, and we don't have this palatial house in Long Island. I mean, I'm in Queens. OK, this I wear a, you know, an apartment in Queens and the level of chaos and noise nonstop, I mean, is very difficult. And so pulling away just for three minutes in the bathroom or wherever I could find the space to get alone with God, uh, if that's where you need to start, that's where you start. Uh, and so I think a word of encouragement, Jesus can do a lot with a little. Uh, I do think whether we set our timers, whatever, for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, uh, start wherever you can. But here's a prayer that I've learned to pray and a prayer that I've learned to teach. And I do think that the Holy Spirit has a way of doing something in our soul when this becomes our prayer. My prayer is often, Lord, grant me desire to seek you more and more. And when that desire is not there, grant me discipline. Uh, ultimately, I want to want to pray. I want to want to be with God, but I also know that I get tired. I also know I get irritable and moody and things happen and work happens and parenting happens and all the rest. Lord, I don't want to be here, but can you give me the discipline to show up anyway? And I think what begins to happen is as we begin to do that more and more, our body, our soul starts craving it and, and recognizes when it goes missing. Like with Sabbath, We've been practicing Sabbath as a family for 13 years, virtually every single Friday, doing the same thing. And if I have to miss it because I was in a speaking event or something rare that happens, my body feels it. Hmm. And I think that's what happens with prayer as well. The more we give ourselves to prayer, the more something is awakened in our soul that when we're not doing it, I think we yearn to come back to that center. This is so practical and so real to life. I mean, just snatching it, even three minutes in the bathroom just to create some space. I mean, it's so helpful. Uh, you're already pushing us to think in very creative ways about the spiritual life uh, and prayer. And I, I want to expand it um, to encompassing some of our emotions. Yeah. So on prayer, uh, we have this quote from Henry Now, and I, I'm beginning to see that much of praying is grieving. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot to grieve in the past year or two, yeah. uh, maybe even the decades before that. that really, there, there are always things to grieve. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the role of grieving and praying? I think the role of grief in prayer is to allow ourselves to... Um, experience something of God's healing in such a way that helps us to draw near to others. You know, prayer, if prayer is not producing in us greater love for those who have been wounded, I don't know if we're doing it right. And so in one way, listen, we, we are living in, I'm calling this a CPR world, a world that's marked by COVID, political idolatry, racial hostility, CPR. And it's converged. The convergence of these three things 
have caused so much grief in our lives and in our world. Grief is an opportunity for us to live in reality. There's grieving is an opportunity for us to say, I'm not going to live in illusion, that God does not dwell in illusions. The only place God doesn't dwell, God does not dwell in illusion. And I'm going to offer what's happening in the deepest part of my soul to God. Uh, this is helpful because the Psalms, you know, some are, some say 40%, some say 50, some say two thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of disorientation, Psalms of confusion. How long, O Lord, where are you, O Lord? And so I think in praying our, our grief, we're, we're tapping into some part of our soul that's often not tended to, but it's not just for, we, we pray our, we lament and we, we pay attention to our grief, not just for our own personal catharsis. We, we, we lament because when we do so, when we lift mind and heart to God and open up space of pain, what we're doing is we're opening space for the Holy Spirit to give us a new kind of social consciousness uh, where we're able to now step into the world as the loving arms and, of, of Jesus, embracing the world around us. And, and I think that's probably what's, what's missing most in our world right now. How is it that there's so much um, often... Uh, this numbness uh, to the pain that's around us. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died in this pandemic and you can still sense a numbness of uh, and how do we tap into greater acts of love? I think part of it is allowing ourselves to grieve. And this touches on something, Walter, that's even deeper that there are many people who have not even had a theology of grief have not, or come from a family that gave them permission to grieve. And so the layers here are so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've known to be in churches where, you know, you would think the only Bible scriptures is Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the pastor gets up and says, rejoice. I don't care what you're going through. Yeah. I, and I, and I believe that that's in the Bible. At the same time, there's a book called Lamentations. And so which one is it? Is it rejoice in the Lord always or how long, O Lord? And the answer is yes. Uh, it's, it's holding on to the, uh, this kind of non-dualistic way of thinking about what the world is. And so, yeah, I think our grief is not just for ourselves. I think ultimately we, we lament so as to enter into the world of others who are experiencing profound pain and to find God there and to look for God's healing in those spaces. Rich, I'm going to ask you to hold these things together now. So you've just walked us through a bit of processing our grief and prayer uh, can you offer us a, a last word of encouragement, maybe to the person who feels a deeply formed life is, is just out of reach or is discouraged with their prayer life? Yeah, you know, when I think about their the prayer life, I, number one, all of the so-called masters of prayer have all confessed one thing, that to pray is to always be a beginner. That's what the masters of prayer have said. The people who, who the world has looked to over the years have all confessed and said, we're all beginners here. And so, yes, I take a lot of time to pray and read about prayer and try to immerse myself in a rhythm of prayer. But every time I show up to pray, I feel like I'm starting again. I feel like, and, and I'm not just saying, this is not just metaphorical. Here. This is like, literally, I sit down, my mind is distracted. I'm wondering if I'm doing it right. And I have to try to put all that aside and just keep showing up. And so for the person who's wondering, this is out of my reach, I would say uh, it, it might be out of, but it's out of everybody's reach in some way. <laughs> 
you're, 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 there's no spiritual elite here. Uh, what, what makes someone growing in prayer is the simple act of keeping showing up. I'm going to keep showing up even though I feel like a, a beginner. Uh, but the other thing I'd say is here's a simple way to begin to integrate um, the, the two things about looking within and prayer. We use a, a very simple tool at New Life called Exploring the Iceberg. And for those people who are beginners, um, I, we've used this. And for people who have been on the journey of faith for many, many years, we've used this. And it has been equally powerful. Four very simple questions for your time in prayer that connects the contemplative life with your interior life. And here they are. They're so elementary. I do this with my seven-year-old. I do this with my daughter uh, when we're at the dinner table, when we're talking. Four very simple questions. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? What am I glad about? And it's amazing how when we take those very four questions, those simple questions, and orient our hearts toward God, that there's something in our souls that gets opened up and we're able to encounter the living God through those simple questions. There's a lot to be angry about. How, how do we offer our anger before God? There's a lot to grieve and, and to be sad about. There's plenty to be anxious about. Instead of avoiding myself uh, and using God to run from myself, uh, I want to now ask those questions. And those, I love those because like I said, elementary students could do it, but so can PhDs. Uh, and all God needs is uh, us to be honest enough uh, to say, yeah, there's certain things in my soul uh, that need to find expression. Those are great questions to leave us with. <laughs> Our guests on today's conversation has been Rich Veodas. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Rich. National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org. <laughs>